Well, this morning we have the privilege of having another one of our missionaries, Harry Gebert. We've supported the Geberts for many, many years. Harry is uh, the executive director of South Asia for ABWE, and he's going to come and share with us this morning our sermon. Thanks, John. Hey, it's great to be back here. Um, Mount Calvary has been a blessing in our lives. When we came back from the Middle East uh, in 2007, we attended here for about three or four years, and uh, we're in a life group that was a blessing to us, ministered to our souls. Um, you helped to get us back on our feet, and uh, we appreciate that. I wish Jan was here uh, to join me this morning. She's not. Uh, she's doing well. Um, during COVID, um, she um, had some big surgeries um, connected with that time that you prayed for us in 2010. Uh, life flighted back from Istanbul, uh, lung stuff. Um, in the OR 13 times over these last two years, uh, 100 plus days in the hospital, she's doing well. She's recovering well. Um, she's got some chronic infectious stuff that uh, makes her lungs more fragile. And so that's why you see me wearing a mask up here. Um, but uh, man, I'm glad to be with you all. It's, it's really nice. Um, you know, I, I was captivated by Jesus at age 19, long-haired, end of the hippie generation, and all of that meant, and uh, met my wife. Uh, she's the one who introduced me to Christ, uh, married three or four years later in medical school, and we were just two young doctors who were willing to go wherever God would send us, hoping to go somewhere overseas. We've lived just in closed places in the world, in what we call restricted access countries. We spent a decade in Africa, and then uh, in the next seven years lived in two spots in Europe and then in the Middle East, Jordan. Uh, came back, and when we were here, started to work in the stands, uh, those stand countries, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, that type of stuff. Um, closed countries again, uh, did a lot of work there. And now I oversee six countries, uh, what we call our South Asia area at APWE. Uh, UAE, that's one you've heard of. Dubai is probably the name you've heard of most. Uh, just there three days ago, four days ago. Um, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Brunei. Uh, three of those uh, countries are the top Muslim-populated countries in the world. Uh, 700 million Muslims in those six countries. That's over a third of the world's Muslims. And uh, I am just back, like I said, Thursday from one of those countries, uh, deeper into South Asia than Dubai. And uh, it's just kind of like whiplash here uh, with a little jet lag and uh, just among friends, etc. Um, this is a different spot than I was just in a couple days ago. I would describe that a couple days ago as two things. Uh, you know, we had a little heat yesterday, and I say a little. We had a little heat yesterday, and the other thing that characterizes this country is crowds and crowds and crowds of people. You know, in, in the first world, we're in the first world here, um, a problem is when my air condition is not working. That's a problem. In the third world, uh, the real question is, what's air conditioning? Because it doesn't exist in most of those places. Um, that country I was in is home to the largest people group, unreached people group in the world. 
135 million people. And you might think, well, my neighbor next door is unreached. Well, by the missiological definition, that neighbor's not unreached. They're unsaved. Maybe you haven't shared the gospel with them, but they're not unreached. Unreached means no Bibles. Now, I would imagine you got at least one in your home, if not five, if not ten. No churches. Now, you, I don't know how many churches you passed to get to this great one this morning, but you passed a bunch of them. And no Christians. You know, there's hundreds right here. No access to the gospel. That's what unreached spots mean, and that's what that country I was in. And I told you it was crowded. Just to give you a little perspective, okay? Elizabethtown, the population density of this town is 537 people per square mile, okay? Now let's go a little bit more crowded close by. New York City, okay? 27,000 people per square mile. You know, I can take that for a little while, but not long, okay? The capital of the country I was just in is 96,000 people per square mile. So just to put that in perspective, Elizabethtown would have 1.7 million people to equal that. So there's just people everywhere. They're on top of you. Your neighbors are looking at everything you do, and they're right next to you a lot of the time, sweating right next to you. You know, it was hot there. I was grumpy. Do you get grumpy when you're hot? I do. Uh, I had a headache. I was tired. I was walking across this, this campus because it's a 10 or 15-minute walk to get from one end to the other where a hospital is. And I was thinking, you know, Harry, you, you like heat. Like, what's wrong here, you know? So they have internet. So I pulled out my phone and got on the Weather Channel and... I was really disappointed to see that it was only 91 degrees. But then it said, feels like 108. And inside, I just went, yes. You know, that's why I'm grumpy. Well, you've been asking the question uh, in sermons this last month, who's my neighbor? Miss Stinson was my neighbor as a little kid. She was old. I think she's pro she was probably younger than me right now, but she was old. And my friends and I would go see her three or four times a week because we got candy and a cool place to you know, sit and talk, and she was a nice lady. I knew the people on my street and the streets over from me. That's when houses had front porches that people actually sat on and talked to their neighbors. And I'm not trying to be nostalgic here, okay? That still exists in many places in the United States, but we have more virtual communities, and virtual communities aren't bad. I'm, I'm parts of a number of virtual communities, but we are wired to seek relationships and community. That's how God made us, physical relationships and community with people around us. You know, in COVID, we've been social distancing, okay? And the one thing I noticed as we social distanced was that people would move their heads closer and closer and closer together, okay? You couldn't help it. This is what we're wired to be. We're wired for relationships. So I did my own research on neighbors, 
And so these are definitions that you could find online in a virtual community, okay? So online, a neighbor is a person who lives near you, okay? So the person next door, that can be a neighbor. Another definition is my neighbor is my fellow human being. That could be anywhere. But more importantly, I found this definition of what it's like to be neighborly. A person marked by principles of friendship and cooperation with other cultures. Now, a couple weeks ago, Pastor shared a sermon from Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this was a man who was characterized by the principles of friendship and cooperation with another culture. And I think Jesus was saying, this is what Christians are supposed to be like. Friendly, cooperative with other cultures, neighbors. Now, I'm going to put up here Revelation 5.9. will be right up in front of you. And I want you to think about this concept of being a neighbor for eternity. Okay? So this is happening in heaven. And Jesus is the one who's going to open the scroll. And it says, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we just skipped two chapters more, Revelation 7, 9. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. These are people in heaven, okay? from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Heaven is populated by people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue. Well, What does that mean to us? Who are these people? Well, if we look at the word nation, there's 195 right now in the world. And I say right now because that number goes up and down. Okay, New nations are forming, etc. The actual words for nation, all the nations, are panta to ethne. That just means all the nations in Greek. No big deal. And we first see that concept in Genesis 12 with Abraham. And God said, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And that word family just meant family, clan, or tribe. Okay, so it's breaking it down from these geopolitical nations of 195 to families and tribes and languages and tongues. Who are these tribes and languages and tongues? We think of them ethno-linguistically, okay? The word just means ethnic. Are you Italian? Are you German? Are you like me, kind of like a mutt? You know, I, I'm an eighth Polish, okay? There used to be Polish jokes, okay? And when my wife heard that I was an eighth Polish, she just went, that explains it, okay? So ethnic 
and linguistic. How far can understanding go within a language? Okay, we spoke the language Wolof in Africa. It's spoken at that time by like five million people, not very many, okay? They were a people group. So boundaries, language, geography, and ethnicity, there are 17,468 people groups in the world. 17,468 populating heaven. Okay? What diversity God has created. And every one of them is ethnocentric. Every one of them. I've learned a couple languages, lived in three other spots in the world, and everyone thinks their country is the best in the world. Every one of them. So do we. Well, all those people are in heaven, and all these people groups in heaven make me think that God expects that we will call these people our neighbors, those 17,468 people groups, that we'll identify those people as our neighbors and that we'll treat them as our neighbors, or there's no way that they're going to be there. I know God can do anything. He's sovereign, but he has entrusted this to us. He's decided to work through us. And so if we don't treat them as neighbors, they're not going to be there. Romans 10, 14 says, How will they call on him who they don't know? Excuse me, I'll just read it. I was going to quote it from memory in a different version, probably my own version. <laughs> how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You know, the answer to that is someone's got to go. Someone's got to go and tell them. Revelation 7, Revelation 5. Now Revelation 15, another one here. And they sing the song of Moses. Who sings the song of Moses? The inhabitants of heaven. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the land, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God. The Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, the ethnicities. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations, panta to ethne, will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. There has to be a universality for sharing the gospel. There must be. So let's look at how to do this because Jesus actually spoke about this. He actually told us how to do this. And so we're going to go to Matthew 28. 18 through 20. And Jesus, it's right here on the screen, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The nations are spoken of right here, okay? Make disciples of all nations, panta to ethne, every tribe, language, people, and tongue. They must be my neighbors here, or they will not be my neighbors there. Or to say it more positively, they're my neighbors there, 
because they were my neighbors here. The heading on this is called the Great Commission, and I sigh because of all the commissions found in Scripture, this is a quote, of all the commissions found in Scripture, none are as far-reaching in authority, task, scope, strategy, and promise as this one. That's from a guy named Marvin Newell. He wrote a book called A Third of Us. I recommend it to you. It's a quick read, about 120 pages long. Charles Spurgeon, king of the preachers, said, this is the perpetual commission of the church of Christ. Now, there are actually five great commissions given in Scripture. John 20, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Okay? So that's the model, sent. Mark 16, go into all the world. Okay? That is the magnitude, all the world. Matthew 28, this one right here, make disciples. That's the method. Luke 24, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's the message. And Acts 1.8, you will receive power. That's the means. Now, that's from Marvin Newell, too. That, that, that's not from me. I can't alliterate like that, like model, method, magnitude, message, means, okay? But five Great Commission passages, we're just going to look at one of them today. So, is this a suggestion or is this a command? Okay? So Jesus says, all authority is given to me. Now, guys, wouldn't it be nice if you would go and make disciples of all the nations? Now, he didn't say that. He just said the command. All authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples. It's a command. William Carey said this. Christians are obligated to go and make disciples of all nations. They are commanded to carry out Jesus' instructions out of obedience. The Christian's motivation for discipleship and evangelism should flow from an obligation to obey a direct command of Jesus. Direct command. We don't like commands, okay? You know, we obey them all the time, like traffic signals and stop signs. Like, like they're not suggestions, they're commands, okay? Country I was just in don't exist, Okay? And they have a lot more accidents, a lot more people die on their roads, okay? So those commands are, are for a purpose. But let's look with some fresh eyes because th if this is a command for us to obey, and it is, we have a moral, biblical, and missional obligation to fulfill it. It has serious implications in our lives. And Jesus starts this off by saying all authority. Now, I don't know who's self-employed here. But the rest of us are all employed by someone. I'm actually gainfully employed by your church. Uh, you support Jan and I to do that. Okay? And you know, when I was in college with those jobs I hated, okay, I mowed grass for like days on end at a golf course. And I would punch in like two seconds before I was due, you know, and I would leave when I could. And I was happy to have a paycheck. But they had authority because they were paying me, and I agreed to it, and they made the requirements. All right? 
But here, authority is even more authoritative. The Greek word authority has the idea of authority and power. Power. Now, Jesus is no longer the meek, mild son of a carpenter. He is the king of the universe. He holds the seven stars in his hand. He's the first. He's the last. He was dead and came back to life. He holds a sword of judgment from God. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Those are just from the couple chapters of Revelation. That's who he is, and because he has all that authority, we don't have to fear. We're his children, and there will be no lack to do what he wants done. In verse 18, Jesus clearly establishes his authority to deliver the what's next command. Whatever Jesus says after verse 18 is critical and must be seen as authoritative. So, 19 and 20, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's a lot of verbs in English in that sentence, right? But in the Greek... There's really only one main verb, and it is not go. It is make disciples. Now, English majors out there, make disciples is a noun and a verb, right? So the Greek word is disciple. Disciple. That's what Jesus is saying. I have all authority, therefore, disciple. Make disciples in English. Cause people to become followers of me. The heart of disciple-making, Tony and Angela involved in this, the heart of disciple-making is reproduction. They want to reproduce in others what Jesus has produced in us, faith, obedience, peace, compassion, love, and a bold, truthful witness. That's what we're talking about here. So who's the command to? I don't see any you in here, okay? It's the implied you. You go and make disciples of all nations. Now, if that doesn't blow you away, I mean, really? This is what you're asking me to do? No, no, no. This is what you're commanding me to do? You go, Harry, and make disciples of all nations. You go, John. You go, Matthew. You go, Judas. You go, Thomas. And make disciples of all nations. Jesus has in mind the entire breadth of the church and the church age. This is all of us who believe in him and have been disciples from the beginning of time when Jesus said this. Disciples in the broadest sense who can go to every nation throughout the ages. This, again, this is huge. Every single disciple of Jesus Christ is obligated through his authority to reproduce what's been done to them, in them, and do it in others' 
The gospel was proclaimed to me. I believed. I need to reproduce that. I was baptized. I need to reproduce that. I was taught the scriptures. I need to reproduce that. Because my king, your king, commands it. Disciples are the focus of the sentence. But Jesus helpfully gives us three more things here. And they're called participles. Okay? I wasn't an English major. Okay? But, you know, they're helpful here. Participles are the ing words. Okay? They're a verb that has an ing on it. Okay? And they modify other verbs. So they act like an adjective. Additionally, to clarify or to explain or to give color to that verb. Okay? So the three participles are go, baptize, teach. Really, going and baptizing and teaching. Now, this is where it gets serious, okay? This is the part, I mean, you came to Mission Sunday. You got a missionary in front of you who really likes what he does, you know? I mean, yeah, it's no fun to go 10 time zones and back, you know? But, man, it was a good trip, okay? And those are good missionaries, and I love them, okay? But now you got this missionary up here preaching on the Great Commission, that talks about going different places. I just want you to, to relax a little bit, okay? I'm not going to put the finger on you. And After church, I'm going to drag you off to ABWE and sign you up, and you're going to appear in that hot, crowded country uh, that uh, I was just in. I'm not saying that. But the first word is go. And what this means is act and do. Making disciples is an active process. It takes energy and effort on the part of the disciple maker. Disciples just don't happen. Pastors wish disciples would just happen, that people would just grow up. You know, just as I was in trouble about 15 years ago. I don't know if any of you remember Dr. Kempton. Okay, he was the president of ABW. Man, he was a really impressive guy. I, I got to be mentored by this guy. And I wasn't doing well. And Dr. Kempton, after I had talked with him for a while, he looked at me and he said, Harry, you're growing up. And man, you know, it sounded really nice, but I was pretty dejected with that, you know, because I was like 50-something, you know, you're growing up. And then he looked at me and he said, and so am I. We need to be growing. We need to be growing up. We need to continue to grow so that we can make other disciples. This is a command. It's the command is the command necessitates that we go and do this to all the nations. Now, I realize that going, and you need to realize this, does not mean that every believer must go overseas. Okay? Doesn't mean that. Going can mean many things, but it doesn't mean one thing. It doesn't mean staying and doing nothing. 
That's not what going means. That's not what the answer to this command is. It doesn't mean stay and do nothing if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. When the command from Jesus is to go, the appropriate response is, how far? That's the question for you to answer. How far do I go? Okay? Go and make disciples. How far, Jesus? Okay? So the next part is baptizing. Baptism is an outward act of inward conversion. First used for the Gentiles coming to Judaism. A tangible expression. We see it. We feel it when you're baptized. A tangible expression of faith in Jesus and a vital part of our response to God. Obedience, really. Baptism represents the newness of life we have in Jesus. And if we think about immersion, in the water died to sin in the old man. Out of the water raised to newness of life, born again, the language of John chapter 3. Baptism is something that connects you and me with every believer in the world. That Buddhist convert who is baptized, that Muslim convert who is baptized, and this is a really hard thing for Muslims to do because now their identity is in Jesus Christ. That 19-year-old kid with long hair who was baptized, I share an identity with those people, and so do you. This is a common identity that that Jesus says, go make disciples, have a common identity with them, baptize them, and then teach them. Teach them what? Well, Jesus is really good here because he specifically says to observe everything, all that I have commanded you. Teach them to obey it. Everything that I've commanded you. It's all in the book. Okay? It's here. No surprises. This is what we're supposed to teach. So, there it is. One of the answers to the question, who's my neighbor? All the nations. Panta to ethne. Every tribe, every language, every people, every tongue, and it comes with a command. Jesus commands me as a disciple to make disciples of all nations. Go, not stay and do nothing. Be active here or there. Baptize, introduce people to Christ into that relationship. Teach, see others grow. So, one of my colleagues says there's two parts to a sermon. Okay, The big part so, that was the so. The other part is the so what. So, what's this mean to me? What's this mean to you? What does this huge command, the Great Commission, and the obligation of every believer in Christ to obey it mean to me as I sit right here at Mount Calvary this morning? So remember I said the answer to the go command of Jesus was how far? Okay, how far? So, three choices, Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, other to the end of the earth. Okay? So, Jerusalem, here. Elizabethtown, its environs. 
Has God called you here to Elizabethtown? That's one of the answers to go and make disciples. A second one would be to the United States, somewhere in the United States. That's a Judea. And the third part is to the ends of the earth. And where's the ends of the earth? Well, I used to think it was the Gambia because you had to go to Timbuktu, take a right for 800 miles, and then you arrived. Okay? It's just all those countries and nations and peoples and tongues that are overseas, cross-cultural, international. Well, here, close by, country, overseas, I actually think it's all three that we're supposed to do, and here's why. As a disciple of Christ, because of his command and authority in my life, I must feel the weight and responsibility of the Great Commission and go to one of those three places and pray and support others in other places. Be they, my obligation is to pray for you here at Mount Calvary. This is one of the, the places to go. My obligation is to pray for people I know that are ministering in New York City. My obligation is to pray for those internationally as well. Okay? So you're going to go to one of those places and you're going to pray and support believers all around the world to actually do the Great Commission. And that's my focus in missions, that I would understand and that every disciple would understand the weight and responsibility of the Great Commission for themselves. People ask me, Harry, you've got six countries. They're huge. What would be success? What would be success as a mission leader? Success would be that people in those countries would come to know Christ, plant churches, and send missionaries to other Muslim countries. That would be success. That would be following what God commands. Now, one little caveat. Is this risky? Yeah, it is. It's risky for you here. You might think you might jeopardize a friendship. You might think, oh, I can't do this. I'll just stutter or I don't have all the words. Yes, it's risky to make disciples here or there. But, you know, we get, we get this expression, the center of God's will. Okay, that's the safest place to be, the center of God's will. No, it's not. It's the place to be, but it's not necessarily safe. It is God's unique spot for us, the center of his will. That's what you need to go and ask him about. Where's the center of your will for me? Here, going and making disciples, or possibly even there. Before we went to Africa... This quote challenged me greatly. Ships in harbor are safe, but that is not what ships are built for. You're not built to stay and do nothing. I'm not built to stay and do nothing. I'm built to obey the commands of Jesus Christ. May we do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the way it stood for you for years. Thank you for its pastors. Thank you for its leaders. Thank you for the people who attend. Thank you for the people here who are believers. 
May they share your commands and make disciples. Thankful for people here who are not believers, who don't know you. Father, may they know that there's good news in Jesus Christ, that he came to save people who are messed up, who are not perfect, who make mistakes by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. Father, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.